I think it was last week I said I was only going to preach through two sentences. Good news. Today I'm only going to preach through one sentence. It's Ephesians 19 through 23 is only one sentence in the original language. Isn't that wild? This, uh, just to say, I don't usually get into this, but... Um, Translations, every, every translation we have falls short of how it was originally written. And how it was originally written is really hard to know what they meant. Because I think I said one time, whenever I say dudes, if you look that up in the dictionary, it says cowboys. And so when I call somebody dudes, somebody might translate that 500 years from now as he called to them. Cowboys, how are you doing on your skateboard, right? And uh, so that's why it's super good. The best Bible translation of all is the one that you're going to read and the one that you're going to spend the most time reading. And the second best Bible translation is the different one that you have on hand to compare it to. So that's why it's, it's always super good to have, have a, a couple different translations and whenever you read something, maybe the Holy Spirit will draw your attention to a verse, and you're like, I wonder what that is in the NLT. I wonder what that is in the ESV or the NIV. Those are all, those are all fine translations. They all have their biases and their, their twists, so it's good to, to have another one that's a different twist, right? A different bias. So, in Greek, 15 through 23 is all one sentence. And different translators have broken that up in different ways for clarity. And you might see a bunch of footnotes where they've added words for clarity because if they say his, you don't know if they're talking about his Tychicus, the guy that delivered the letter, or his Jesus, or his God, who it, who it is. So anyway, with all that said, it, it's, it's good to have a variety. So he starts... For this reason, and whenever you read something like that, what do you have to do? You have to rewind and figure out what, he's, what is he talking about. All of the stuff we talked about last week, about how God saved you, God rescued you, God knew in advance what saved people would be like, and so he has saved you by his grace, and he is making you into that person, and in some weird time travel language, he's already made you into that person. Because God is exempt from time, right? So he, he, knows, he knows what he's made you into. He knows what Christians look like. And he, he has already determined that he wants to make you look like that. And so because of all this praise of his glory, for all of, all of his mercy and love that he's shown us, everything he's done for us, for this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is always thankful for the Ephesians. He's always thankful for the Ephesian church. There's Some people have interpreted this that he's always thankful. He's always praying for them. And, uh, and you know what? That's good too. To, to, always, be, to always begin with thanks. You know, as I think about how I pray for people, and I don't know, maybe I'm all alone in this, 
but I typically open by judging them and praying for all the things that I think are wrong with somebody, right? God, help that guy to not be so obnoxious. And then I move into thanksgiving, and then I move into praying for them. And I don't think that's the model that Jesus set for us, right? And so here he is, give thanks, I give thanks for you. And I'm, honestly, I am transforming my prayer life because I'm, I'm thanking God. You know, whenever I pray for somebody, I'm trying to, to be thankful for them first. And all of a sudden that puts me in a frame of mind to really listen to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit isn't kicking off by judging them, right? The Holy Spirit has made them holy, has made them uh, set apart in advance to be a holy person, to, to look like this. And so it's good to pray as we pray for people to give thanks for them. Also in the section, I was just thinking about just some points to, you know, how do you pray for people? And how do you, you, there's some hacks that you can do to make yourself pray more. And there's some tricks that you can do. Like um, one time I had a job and I worked on the corner of the fifth third building. And so I could see out in two directions, but I was low on the building. So I mainly saw the street. I was on the fourth floor, so I didn't have the majestic view. Right. And, uh, but I was on the phone all the time and I wasn't looking at screens or anything. I mean, I could just let my mind wander and just answer questions on the phone. So I'd look out the window and every time I saw a red car, I would just worship the Lord. And I wasn't worshiping out loud and freaking out all the tellers and customer service reps. Oh, glory to Jesus. No, but just in my soul, worshiping God every time I saw a red car. And some days the Lord would have me worship all day long. There'd be so many red cars. That was when uh, D. Patrick had 100 red escorts for sale. Because, yeah, it was complicated. But it was like, wow. Uh, there's a time where the pastor at Crossroads and the pastor at Bethel both bought Chevy Trailblazers. Like the same model year, everything. One was red and one was blue. And I was like, you know what? Every time I see a Chevy Trailblazer, I'm going to pray for the leadership at Bethel and the leadership at Crossroads and for church, churches to get along with each other. It was like the best-selling SUV that year. There were Trailblazers everywhere. I was praying all the time. And what happens? You just get into this groove where you just start praying. Lord, bless and you're like, gosh, I just spent the whole week praying for the leadership of these churches in unity. That's awesome, right? And then I think I've told you this one before. So I have five kids. And one time my wife made a joke that I can, uh, when they're all old, I can meet one of them every weekday for donuts in the morning, which is a great idea. But then we started a thing where I pray down through the kids. Monday, I pray for Isaac. Tuesday, I pray for David. Wednesday, I pray for Grace. Thursday, I pray for Caleb. Friday, I pray for Levi. And Cindy prays up through the kids. So Monday, she prays for Caleb. Tuesday, she prays for Levi. Wednesday, she prays for Grace. Thursday, she prays for David. And Friday, she prays for Isaac. Which means Gracie on Wednesday is her power day. And we tell her that every Wednesday or every Tuesday night. Gracie, I'm going to be praying for you tomorrow. It's your power day. 
and she's just so then what happens? So my work, you know, I'm not always at my desk, but there's a section in the hall just outside the bathroom that I think to myself every time I walk through this section of the hallway is I'm going to pray for whoever's day it is. And so what happens is if I have to run to the printer and that way's blocked and I go this way, I'm all of a sudden I'm in the spot that reminds me to pray for David. And now, is that the Holy Spirit working in me to do that? No. That's just a real practical, earthly thing. But we need that stuff to remind us, right? We need, we need prompts to, to help us, you know, I can be so focused on what I just pulled off the printer, and I'm going to give this to the client, and are they going to let, oh, I, I should pray for Devo right now. And I, I get a little jolt back into reality of what's really important, you know, Client Schmeyant, I need to pray for my son. And so I encourage you guys, make tricks like that. Don't make too many because you'll be totally overwhelmed and you won't remember which trick you're doing. But if you just do one at a time and then you add another one, like now, I do not pray every time I see a red car. That's, that's gone. I do pray every time I see that model trailblazer because that thing is going to be old. So that makes me pray for for Bill and Dave, because, yeah, that'd be an old car by now. So there's stuff you can do. Remember, you th- I do not cease to give thanks for you. You know, elsewhere, Paul says, pray without ceasing. And little tricks like that and little things like that turn into a whole day uh, in prayer while you're doing everything else. And then what happens? That turns into a whole week, a week of prayer. And then all of a sudden that turns into a whole life, a whole life of prayer, which is really would be an amazing thing to look back on, right? An amazing thing to experience. So, yes, pray, give thanks, all of that. Paul loved the Ephesian church. He, he would even go back there. That'd be his last stop on his way back to Jerusalem when he knew he was going to get arrested and and probably killed and all that, he made sure to stop it and meet with the Ephesian church. He just, he loved those guys. So his prayer. What is he praying? That This is verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. So He is praying for them. The Ephesian church had all kinds of trouble. That the, um, the whole city was run by silversmiths that made idols, to Artemis, who's this little statue of fertility, and, uh, and it was gross, and they were the whole city of Ephesus was almost in a riot over the Christians. I mean, that's how unwelcome they were. The, that, that was the kickoff. The kickoff of the Ephesian church was a riot against them for the sake of this little silver statue. So that's their circumstance. That's what they're... So you think, okay, Ephesian church, what would they ask for prayer for? 
safety from the Romans, that our friends wouldn't hate us because we're Christians. Uh, pray that, that we'd be able to grow so that we could get a, a bigger building. None of that. His prayer for them is that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Like if there's anything I could pray for you, it's that you would know God. That's what His prayer is. Isn't that wild? I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Well, isn't that just like the number one thing? Don't you just think, gosh... If I had the, the, the deeper and sounder and more confident knowledge of Jesus, and I don't mean head knowledge, just like knowledge of He is close to me, I am close to Him, I am His, He is mine, I am with Him, He died for me. You could probably take on anything. You could take on a whole city riot against you. You could take on all of your neighbors and family having these giant, obscene silver statues in their house. You could, you could handle all of that as you grew in the knowledge, uh, spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so you'll know the hope to which He has called you. You know, so, Ready? I have entered the bifocal age. I'll take high fives after church. These things are messed up. These are crazy. And the first pair I took back to the store because I couldn't handle it. And then a, a buddy of mine that has, he's got trifocals or bifocals. He's like, you know what? You just need to put them on and get used to it. Like the stairs are coming up at me, everything. This affects how I see everything. And I see everything differently than I saw it before. I was at a Bible study Friday morning and I told the guys, if I'm nodding a whole lot, it's because I'm trying to get you in focus. I'm trying to look at you the right... I'm not agreeing with you. I'm just trying to see you. It changes everything. So when Paul prays, I pray for the eyes of your heart... To be enlightened. The eyes of your heart to be enlightened is so that you can see things the way God wants you to see them. Through the, the, the light that Christ brings, the truth that Christ brings. What does that do? That makes you not see somebody as a jerk, but you see somebody that's really hurting and really trying hard to cope with their circumstance. It helps you to see somebody not, not as, as arrogant and selfish, but it helps you to see somebody as desperately afraid of losing something that they are valuing that's not worth value. But they're desperate to hold on to it, and that plays out as them being an arrogant, selfish person. And man, how much mercy do you have when the person comes at you and they're arrogant and they're selfish, and you're like, oh, I hate that arrogant, selfish person, right? I mean, what, how's the Holy Spirit going to work through you when you hate them because they're arrogant and selfish? When the Holy Spirit works through you to see them 
as somebody that's really hurting, trying to hold on to something that's not worth anything, but they don't know that, all of a sudden, I think this is how Jesus, you know, he meets the woman at the well. And the woman at the well says, you Jews say we should pray in Jerusalem, but everybody here in Samaria says we should do it on this mountain. And Jesus doesn't even talk about which mountain we should pray on. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask for living water. And it cuts right to her soul. Or the rich young ruler comes and he says, I've followed all these things. I've I've obeyed all these commandments since I was a youth. What else should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has the eyes of his heart enlightened to see that this guy, he's not really wanting to be righteous. He's wanting confidence. And he's getting confidence from his riches and not from God. And so Jesus says, take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And you'll get confidence from me, not all your riches. And the guy goes away sad. He, he started out super righteous dude, right? I've obeyed all the commandments. I've done it all. What, what else do I have to do? And some people read that as, what I need eternal life. What else can I do to, to get eternal life? But what if it was arrogant? And he was like, what more can I do? I have done it all. Because he goes away sad because he doesn't want to give away his riches. He's, he has it all, right? So pray, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. If I have this hope in Christ, that Christ is going to take care of everything for me, then whenever I'm confronted with a question or confronted with an issue, what happens if I view it through that? Now, I'm not saying I do this, but I want to get there. Let's view this current crisis through the hope that Christ has bought for us. Let's view this current controversy. This, let's view this, this relationship with our, with our friends or our neighbors that has suddenly gone sideways. How do we view this through our hope in Christ? Well, our hope in Christ says He's going to take care of everything, so I don't have to worry about how much this is going to cost me, because everything's going to be provided. Christ is my identity. My identity is in Christ, so I don't have to worry about shame that's going to come upon me from this. Do you see how suddenly all kinds of fear and all kinds of things that cause conflict just fall away when we put it all in the hope, our hope that's in Christ? If I mess this thing up at work and I make my boss mad at me, I might lose my job, but I've had a dozen jobs and I'm really good at getting new ones. So now I have hope in Christ, right? Christ, He has equipped me. He's never done us wrong. So that just takes away all fear is gone. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. All right, so now we're going to have a logic class. If God loves you ridiculously, He loves you so much, He cares about you in such incredible quantities of... Last week we talked about lavished, right? How 
I put more butter in my pan than eggs because I lavish the butter, right? God lavishes His grace upon you. And then sometimes He doesn't answer our prayers. And we are hurting. And something bad is happening. And so sometimes people have trouble reconciling those things. Why isn't God answering my prayers if He loves me? And all you have to do is give your kid a whole box of orange push-ups, and you'll see why. Because if the kid always got everything they wanted, it wouldn't always be best for the kid or for the parent. But the parents are wise. And as, as foolish as we and sinful as we are all as parents or whatever, God is wise. God knows. And so when we pray for something and it doesn't happen, we can be confident, we can refer back to rule number one, that He loves you. He lavishes His grace upon you. That it's not, He's not not answering the prayer because He's mad at you. He is not not answering that prayer because He wants to hurt you. There's got to be something else going on that he has in mind that he's doing. Because the other part there is he is powerful enough to answer any prayer. It is never about a lack of power. It is never about a lack of love. If anything, it's our lack of knowledge of what he's doing. What in the world is God doing? Sometimes there will be a conflict in our house. Kids will be arguing about something or they'll have conflict with the outside thing or whatever. And I say, hey, what's God? Where's God right now? And it throws everybody off. It's the, just the biggest killjoy to a great fight you could ever have. Where's God right now? I don't know. Then what are you doing? Quit running into this dark forest if you don't know where God is, right? Quit running through this minefield if you don't know where God is, figure out where He is. Find out. And don't give up until, until we know what, where He is or what He wants. Or at least trust that He's there. That is His greatness. His power, uh, the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. He is so powerful to do mighty things. And sometimes He does the thing that we ask. But if you talk to Caleb about what I should do with the escrow on our mortgage, he's going to be like, what? What should we do? And if I say, Caleb, your decision is going to be the difference of tens of thousands of dollars over the next 30 years. Now I just put a whole bunch more pressure on something that he could not possibly understand. Right? And then if I say, do you want to push up? Yes. Okay. You take the push up. Daddy will handle the escrow. How often do we need to go to that kind of prayer relationship with God? God, I, am, I have no clue what you are doing right now. I have no control over all these people that are totally out of control. But I'm going to trust you and I'm going to stick with you. Because the big mistake... Big mistake that friends of mine have had and, and 
you might know some people that have made this, that said, I can't understand him, so I'm not going to believe in him. Oh, and you're just like, oh, come on. Like, Caleb does not move out because I haven't explained escrow to him properly. Right? He's still trusting me to be his dad. And, and I think God says, you know what? I can't explain it all to you because your brain will explode. But trust me and be my kid. Trust me, give thanks for the things I do give you. The immeasurable riches. Immeasurable power. Then Paul gives an example of this power. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All the stuff God ever did. Uh, like saving Joseph, saving Joseph to raise him up to be second to the king of Egypt and saving Jacob and all of his kids, that powerful work and the powerful work of, of appearing to Moses and calling all the Hebrews out of Egypt and the Red Sea parting and the burning bush and manna falling from the sky for 40 years. All of that mighty work. And all the mighty work of Joshua entering the promised land. How the the Levites stepped on the Jordan River and it separated and quit flowing and stacked up like a wall while all the Hebrews marched into the promised land. They wiped out all these people. They built this whole kingdom and and leads up to Saul and, and David and all the prophets and dragging off to Babylon and preserving the church, bringing them back from Babylon. Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilding Jerusalem. All those miracles and power are all, those are all examples that Paul could have used. Greater than all of those is Jesus rising from the dead. And that, that immeasurably great power that he worked when he rose Christ from the dead, rewind again, That's what He's called you to. Those are the riches that He gives you. The riches that He gives you of salvation from your sin, rescue from temptation to evil, as as horrible as hell is, you've been rescued from hell, and and you've you've been given the promise that He is with you all the time right now, always. All that is the power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, big deal in... Ephesus and in the classical world was that God, the gods were gods and they did stuff and they could make decisions and do things and interact with us, but they were separate and they were off in another place. And God is in heaven and he's in the heavens and he rules from heaven. And Jesus busted all that up that He actually came and He lived with us. And He was one of us. He was completely human. So human that He could die 
and be dead, like really dead. And that he would have to be raised to life again. But then all of a sudden the fullness of God is in him. And so Jesus, who's a man, is able to be seated in heaven. And as Jesus is seated in heaven, he's part of all of us by the Holy Spirit. This would have just blown the Ephesians, I mean, it blows my mind, but it would have blown the Ephesians' mind too. Because gods, the gods are separate and men are separate. But now Paul is saying you're all connected. And it's not connected like you know each other, you're connected. Like he feels what you feel. He knows, he thinks what you think. He, you're, you're connected like that, that close. And not only are you connected, but you're not just connected like, I know somebody in heaven. I know this guy. You're connected to the ruler, the king, the one who sits on the throne, the top lord of lords. You are connected to him. Everything is under his feet. But he's the head over all things. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him. We are the body of Christ. When it says we are the body of Christ, it's not, um, you know, the body of believers. That's kind of like poetry. You know, there's a big group of us, just like there's a group of body parts. But what if it's real? What if it's literal? We're his body. Jesus isn't showing up in Evansville to, to give a cup of cold water to the poor kid on the street. He's in you. That's how he shows up to the poor kid in the street, is by living in you. He, Jesus doesn't show up miraculously like Paul on the road to... Um, uh, not Emmaus, help me out here, Nebraskas. Jesus doesn't show up in the grocery store to that distraught single mom who has had a day of it and is at the end of her rope and no, you can't buy this and you can't buy that. And, but Jesus is going to show up in you in that, in that grocery store to pay her grocery bill, surprise her. That's how we are His body. That He has inhabited us and He is working out and doing things in His body. Other totally cool thing, you can't forget that Paul was Jewish. And he was one of the smartest trained Jewish rabbi guys ever. So much that uh, there are historians that say even if Paul hadn't become a Christian and had stayed Jewish, we would still all know about him from history books because he was such a a prodigy, brilliant guy. Well, Paul knows the Psalms, and so sometimes when he's telling things, the Psalms just come out, whether he intended it or not. So let's say you're reading Psalm 8. Because whenever something comes out of Paul that he mentions, he, he has all the context around it. You know how like, you make jokes and you quote a movie quote? And it's funny because you picture the whole movie around the movie that you just quoted. That's, that's how Paul was with Psalms. So, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars to which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So this is a psalm about how huge and great God is and He made the cosmos. And what is mankind compared to God? You have made Him, talking about God made man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet. All sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That little bit, you have put, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. That's straight out of Psalm 8. So with all that baggage in context of Psalm 8, how great you are, God, how huge you are. God seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him, God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is His body. That not only did God send Jesus to die for your sins, but then resurrected, God has given Jesus to us as our leader, as our guide. And so all of this power, all of this prayer, all of this knowledge of the power of God, we can go straight to Jesus and ask Him to teach us and show us more. I, I had this huge discussion with a, a pastor buddy of mine and... Um, this week, and we're, we're texting back and forth, and we're talking about all this awesome stuff. And he said, there is no reason to teach anyone to avoid sin for any reason except Jesus Christ. And it was just like, wow, right? You shouldn't cheat on your taxes because it cheats the government out of their money. You know, that's fine. It does cheat the government out of their money. You shouldn't cheat on your taxes because of Jesus, You should be faithful to your spouse because all your kids will hate you when you get a divorce. No, you you should love because of Jesus. You should be kind to your neighbor because then they might mow your grass for you. No, you should be kind to your neighbor because of Jesus. He is our head. He is the head of us, which are a body. And as we draw near to Him, get ready, as we draw near to Him and as we acknowledge Him as our head, all this stuff backwards that we've just talked about through the whole first chapter of Ephesians happens. It's, it, it all plays out in reverse. I'm not going to read it to you in reverse. But as we consider Jesus our head, what happens? The, the power, the immeasurable greatness of His power shows up to us who believe. We have our hearts enlightened that we, and we know what the hope is 
that he's called us to. We know what that is. We've, we learn more about that as we acknowledge him as, a, as the head of our body. We're able to bring glory, glory to God and our Lord Jesus Christ because we're connected to him and we're learning about his glory. Keep going backwards. We hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believe in him more. That's verse uh, 12, 12 and 13. Everything we've talked about in Ephesians so far all builds up to this moment of realizing that Christ is the head of your body. And the more we get that, the more we get every single thing that the, the grace, the salvation, the not of ourselves, all of that, it, it all plays backwards. It's a big palindrome. No, it's not. But um, so let's let let's let that be. You know, not our prayer so much, but let's just dwell on that this week. That Christ is my head. That that everything that I think about, everything that controls how my body works, every thought that I think, that's Christ. And the more the more I plug my noggin into Christ, the more I'm going to see the riches of His glory and and the power and the inheritance and the riches. That, that He puts forth in my life. And it's not a matter of, I better do it or I won't get it. Because that's the other awesome thing. Christ has already done it. That was the very beginning of chapter 1. Christ has already done it. It's just a matter of us growing in it as, as we're plugged into Him. It's not a, uh, I just need to get better at being a Christian. No, you don't. Christ has already made you the most perfect Christian there is. Um, we just got to figure out what that looks like day to day, right? All right, let's pray. Lord, you are holy and awesome. Thank you so much for saving us, making us completely all right, fully righteous in your sight, which is the only sight that matters. Pray that you would be in us, Lord, that you would prompt us to pray, that we would be able to spend a whole day praying just as we're doing everything else that we do, that we could be with you all the time and, and be sensitive to your spirit all the time, and that we would grow as a body into you who is our head. We worship you and we praise you, Lord, for doing all the hard part for us. And we praise you, Lord, for being right here in us and with us as we work it all out. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So church, as you go out this week, pray for one another that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and just camp and sit on that, that Jesus is with me like my head, like my noggin. God bless you this week.